The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. It's a privilege to be here today. I am here with my wife, Arlette Mbugwa. Please wave so that people can see you. There we go. With our little daughter, Eden, we have two others in the Sunday school class. Um, we have um, heard about the tale of the planting of this church and have been excited about it. And this morning, it is a privilege to stand up and to bring the word to you. Good to see familiar faces as well. Um, it does not feel too strange. We've seen Sebastian in Kenya, and obviously, we... We, we permanently loaned you Andrew Pettigrew um, <laughs> just before we began considering him as an elder um, in Nairobi. So, well, if you have not yet turned your Bibles to Exodus 14, let me ask you to do so now. Well, let me ask you a question. What is your story? What is your story? It's the kind of question that I think is a superior question when you're trying to get to know someone well. You could ask other questions. If you're trying to get to know someone well, you could ask them, where do you live? Are you married? Do you have kids? Those questions are not bad. The thing with those questions is they simply give you data points. They, they don't really tell you anything about who the person is. Because who the person is is not that they're married or, or that they have kids or where they live or what they do. What's your story is a different kind of question. What's your story is a question that's basically asking, how have those things shaped you? How have the events of your life, where you grew up, who your parents were, where you went to school, how did those things mold you? That's the question. When someone asks you, what's your story? The portion we're about to look at, Exodus, is a story about the nation of Israel and how they were saved from captivity. This event was, was meant to show up when you asked any Israelite that particular question, What's your story? It, it was meant to be the shaping story of this entire nation. So that when they were to think about who they were, this story would always show up. You, you see that once you go past this story into the rest of the Bible, into the rest of the Old Testament. Just a couple of chapters beyond this in chapter 20, as the law is being given to them, the Lord begins with the Exodus again. I am the Lord who set you free from slavery in Egypt. Here's the law. You, you see that over and over again in the book of Leviticus as, as he's calling them to holiness. He reminds them of who he is and what he did for them by setting them free from captivity. In many ways, as we look at this story, we'll see that it is the most significant redemptive act of God in the Old Testament pointing us to the cross, the most important redemptive act in our lives, in the whole story 
of God's ultimate people. That is not merely meant to be a part of our history. It's actually meant to be the, 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 the thing that shapes our entire story. So I hope that as we go through this, we are going to see that the Lord is calling us even today to re-see, to, to stare at this grand event of how we have been delivered and allow that to shape us and transform us. If, if you do not catch anything else I'm going to say, at least you know, this is what I'm trying to convince you of. I'm trying to call us to have faith, not fear, for Yahweh fights all your foes for you. That's really what I'm going for. I'm trying to encourage us to have faith, not fear, for it is Yahweh who fights all our foes or your foes for you. By the time we're getting to Exodus 14, it's, it's, it's like watching a movie, a story, and, and, and we're coming to the end in some ways of, of that great victory out of the snares or the clutches of Egypt. And, and yet, as, as, as some movies end, or many movies end, ju- just when everything seems to have worked, the, 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 the girl has been saved, the villain has been vanquished, the music is playing as though it has all come to an end, then the villain rises up again, unexpectedly. That's really what happens here. Uh, as we're moving through this portion, there's really two main pieces to this story. The first one is really the problem. The second one is a solution. I'm going to phrase this too as, 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 as a first portion being a sea of trouble and the second portion of our sermon today being a salvation scene. A sea of trouble. Feel free to use S-E-A or S-E-E of trouble. And a salvation scene. Notice the sea of trouble, the first portion from verse 1 down to verse 12. We are told that as they're heading out, God is leading them, but God is setting something up. It's a setup. The Lord tells Moses that they must encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Balzephon, facing the sea. God sets them up. He, he puts them geographically in a place where they are boxed in. God sets them up because he knows that when they get to that particular geographic location, Pharaoh hearing this will think to himself that they are wandering in the, in the wilderness. They, they are lost. They do not know where to go. In, in many ways, God still knows the low view that Pharaoh has of him. He, he saved them from my hands, but he doesn't know the way out doesn't quite have the GPS necessary to, to, to navigate the wilderness. It's a setup by God because things play exactly as God said they would. God says, it doesn't in this portion explicitly that, that it is God who causes him to think like that. It shows us both the idea that God is sovereign, he will harden his heart, and also shows that Pharaoh is responsible he is discussing with his servants and they're asking themselves, what did we do? We let the Israelites go from serving us. Both elements are there. What we are being shown clearly is that God is fully in charge of all that transpires. In fact, the entire chapter 14 is really those two things. God says how things will go. They go exactly that way. Second portion, 
God says how things will go, they go exactly that way. Main emphasis here as we are beginning the story is that God is setting all this up. But you see how the story goes. This is spelling trouble for God's people. This is not a, a, a simply a, a triumphalistic journey out of Exodus. These are scary times for the people because what God is doing sovereignly is he is putting them seemingly in harm's way. Well, the story continues and look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And when they looked up, this is what they see. It's a, it's a fairly dramatic little, little phrase here because everything is fine up until this point. Everything is okay. But then we're told when they look up, what they see terrifies them. It's, it's, it's like it's Halloween and, and, and you're just busy doing your stuff and you look up and it's the Grim Reaper standing right in front of your face. That's really the idea here. Is that they're marching out of Israel, of, of Egypt, and everything is swell. They're most probably telling stories of, of, of everything that transpired. Did you see that? What, what did you get? What did you pick from, from, from your boss? This is what I carried. And then they look up, and immediately terror grips them. Because here's what they see. They see themselves geographically disadvantaged, boxed in. They see Pharaoh coming at them with everything that he has, a vastly superior army in size, experience, technology, motivation. That's what they see coming at them. And that's a terrifying sight in many ways. I mean, it's, 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 it's like if you, if you pick these two armies or peoples that are about to enter into battle, it's, it's like on the one hand, you, you, you have elite forces, elite commandos armed to the tooth with military tech in battle formation, coming in. For who? For, for, for what seems to be a bunch of tourists lost in the air, at the airport with too much luggage. <laughs> That's how this battle looks like it's shaped up right now. This is not a, an impending fight. This is, this is a massacre that's about to go down. That's what they see. And so that's how they speak. If you listen to their speech, they get immediately all sarcastic, isn't it? I mean, what they've seen has flipped them immediately from, from boldly marching out, that's what it said in verse 8, to now... They're terrified, and they're starting to speak sarcastically about everything, about this, this life that they've been given, this journey that they've been set on. They turn on Moses. They turn on God, really. I don't think even when it says here that they cried out to the Lord that we're, we're supposed to read a lot of faith and hope and, and anticipation for what God is going to do to deliver them because the speech that follows that does not show any confidence in God. As far as they're concerned, there's a world of trouble that is headed their way and nothing standing between them other than an 80-year-old man with a stick. 
no reason to hope. Every reason to fear, every reason to start thinking that God has got it all wrong. You see, what Israel does not see is the real problem here, isn't it? Because what triggers all of this is them looking up. The, the context, do you notice the context of this portion? Go back up to chapter 13. Could read the whole little paragraph there, but just skip down to verse 20 and see that it says, after leaving Sakoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or by night. Verse 22. Neither the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, left its place in front of the people. That's what Moses is telling them is going down here. Before the drama appears, what Moses wants you to know is that God was with these people. What Moses wants to make explicit is that God was the one guiding these people so that as, as they're being told to take a right here and turn a left there and end up in this place by Migdor, by Hahiroth and this, this, this Baal thing, that this is exactly where God wants them to be. But not just merely his will is leading them, but his presence is with them. And it's a very visible presence, you see that. It's a pillar of cloud during the day and of fire during the night. But you note this, that when the, when the Israelites lifted up their heads and looked, they didn't see none of that. What they saw was Egypt bearing down on them. The narrator is, is wanting to make explicit here that God has been sovereign. It is he who has been leading. And he also wants to make it clear that Israel have no sense of that. They do not rate God. What they're terrified of is what they are familiar with. Our God is introducing himself in the book of Exodus, isn't he? Who is Yahweh? This is really the question that Moses asked in the wilderness. What, what will I tell them your name is? Tell them I am has sent you. Pharaoh is saying who is Yahweh that I should let the people go. And you're seeing here that even after the ten plagues, the people of Israel still do not really understand or know who Yahweh is. Because when they see the mighty army bearing down on them, they see right through the cloud to that army. And they respond appropriately with terror because that's all that they're seeing with their eyes. That's just the thing with redemption, isn't it? Oftentimes, even after we have begun the journey, we have truly been delivered. The sacrifice has been made. We are out. We are on our way home. There's a dissonance still, isn't it? 
the dissonance between the reality of what has truly happened, the great victory that has been accomplished, and the experience that the people of God have. So the people of God are cowering and shaking in their boots at the sight of an enemy and a foe. Why? Because we are seeing right past Yahweh. God, but, that, but, 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 but it's fine because, because God has set up this practical lesson to, to bridge that gap so that it might not exist for his people. Notice secondly here, the salvation of the Lord as it's seen. Listen, listen, to, listen to Moses. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. This is verse 13 if you're following. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. And what will happen? You will see something. What will you see? The salvation of the Lord. The deliverance that the Lord will bring to you today. He goes on. The Egyptians you see today, you will never See again. He's about to fix their sight. This is divine ophthalmology. <laughs> if I can call it that. All of your trembling, all of your quaking in your boots, all of your anxiety is being caused by one thing you can't see right. God is saying, just keep quiet. I really like that. that, that is right. Just You only have to be silent. Just keep quiet and watch. He tells them what they're about to see with that last phrase in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you and you only need to be silent. This is going to be what the salvation of the Lord will be, what the deliverance that the Lord will give to them is. It's not advice is about to give to them. It's not some schemes. It's not some survival, make it through the day, ideas. It's you stand there and watch me fight for you. The, the, the concept being established here is core for us to understand that salvation that it is foreshadowing, isn't it? And you will hear this same reality, the Lord fights for you, ring throughout the Old Testament. This concept of the, the way this story works is that the, the, the battle belongs to the Lord. This is a key tenant in understanding the, the redemptive story that the Lord is masterfully working from Genesis to Revelation, the story that he's writing, which is your story, does not have you as a hero. It has him as a hero. Because the climax of that story, the apex of it, has not you fighting and being the, the deadly one. It has him doing all the fighting. And so the battle begins. And, and so he tells Moses, basically, what are you waiting for? 
And Moses is being asked to act in light of all that he has seen. You've, you've, you've seen what I've done through that stick. Go. What are you waiting for? Go and begin the battle. We're told in verse 19 that the, the angel of the Lord moves from the front of the camp and goes to the back. <laughs> the Lord is so in control. So in control. His power is so clearly on display that he will allow the Egyptian army to, to come in close enough for, for Israel to see, but not close enough for them to do anything harmful. He, he draws the line exactly where he wants. That's where I want you no farther. And he keeps that entire army there all night, unable to move and do what they have come to do, to pour out the harm upon Israel that they desire to pour out. Notice verse 21, though. This is really what I want to focus on. There's so much here. But notice verse 21. Verse 21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. It's dramatic stuff right there, isn't it? One, you know it's not the stick that's doing it, right? Just in case it wasn't clear. He's lifting up the stick, but God is the one who's driving this, the, 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 the sea back. It's, it's interesting here, this this language that Moses uses, if, if you're reading Moses, that's the five books of, of, of the Old Testament, so, of, 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 that are beginning the Old Testament, you, you know already that he has used this little combination before, this idea of water and wind. It's not the first time any reader who has just gone through the chapters that are coming before this has come across this. In, in Genesis and chapter 8, he already referenced this. That's the story of the flood and the waters of judgment destroying everyone. And, and even similar phrases as the one you've already had our sister read for us. That after the flood is done, nothing that had breath in it was left alive. This idea of this, this total salvation, total judgment that is being dealt there. And, and there you have an interesting phrase. Listen to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. Don't turn there. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. If you're a keen reader of what is going down in this particular portion in Exodus 14, it will immediately cue you to all. Oh, I have seen water and wind elsewhere. And listen, the same place I saw water and wind, it seemed to do the same thing. It destroyed the wicked and it saved the righteous. This act of salvation, this act of redemption, of deliverance that is being displayed here in Exodus 14 is, is not in isolation. It's not like this one-off. It's cueing us to the fact that since the fall, God has been about this business to save his people. And he has been giving us multiple images that are pointing us to the ultimate deliverance that is yet to come. Well, saints, this is actually not even the first time that language shows up. The word spirit, you might know this. The word spirit is, is really the, simply the word wind. 
There's no distinction between the two. The interpreters have to look at the context to understand does, the word sp- does that word mean spirit here or does it mean wind there? But it's the same exact word. And do you know what other place those two words are together? The very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. What are we told there? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Sin does not exist before the fall. We're clear on that. That's what Moses is talking about here. He's simply giving us imagery here that as he's writing the story, yes, even of creation, he is writing the story of creation from the point of a people who God is redeeming. And he wants them to know that this God of theirs, Yahweh, is the one who in the very beginning overcame the waters in that sense and replaced it with a creation that is beautiful and alive and well-ordered. Who is able to do this? The same God who was capable of creation is the same God who is capable of recreation. The same God who is able to bring about a a new heavens, a new earth, a new humanity. That is what's going on with the Exodus. And so, it is that God that the Egyptians are coming up against. The God who speaks and things come into being. The God who decrees waters and they cover the whole earth and destroy the wicked. It is that same Yahweh that the Egyptians are coming up against. And so in verse 23, what they have been afraid of, the Egyptians and their army, comes to be. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. This is our point in the story where if you're simply one of the Israelites you're, uh, and you have little faith, you're not quite sure how this will all play out because, listen, this is exact. Your worst fears are coming to be. Your greatest enemy is bearing all of his might with one intent to utterly destroy you. But notice verse 24. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army. <laughs> I like that little phrase. It's, it's this thing Israel is so terrified of. You're told Yahweh looks down on them. It's like, what are you doing down there? It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about the passage you've just read, we were told earlier on that the Israelites did what when the army was coming? They looked up, isn't it? And when they looked up, what they saw was an Egyptian army that was going to destroy them. And they were terrified. You know what this verse is telling us? What they should have done is just kept looking up farther. Because what they would have seen is the the Lord who in the cloud looks down upon their enemies. The vast power, the infinite superiority of Yahweh is on display. And so he stops them. God fights back and utterly destroys them. 
And as he does that, the Egyptians know the Lord. See how they wrap up that phrase in verse 25? He jammed their wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. Remember they were clueless about it. What they thought was, <laughs> he's lost. Yeah, Yahweh is lost. I mean, that's like really low estimation of who God is. Like he, he, he doesn't even know the way out. Zero respect for God. Zero fearing of his name. Zero reference. The Israelites show not much more knowledge of Yahweh. But when he is done fighting, and he's, he's displayed as one who's in the thick of it together with his enemies, they know who God is. Look at how the story wraps up. Verse 29. The vision is cleared. This is a problem here. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, the wall of water on their right and on their left. The day, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And what did Israel do? Israel did what? Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. You see, this is the problem, isn't it? Earlier on, they did not fear the Lord. They really feared the enemy more. But that was happening because they were not seeing God. The Exodus was an event that was done right in front of their eyes so that they would know who Yahweh truly is. Because this, this is exactly what they were not getting. Our call and our invitation to have faith and not fear is, is a flip we can't just simply make willfully. I, just, I want to believe. I do not want to be afraid. You, you, you don't quite have that, that, that ability to do it by yourself. What you're being asked to do and what you'll see is constant through the whole scriptures is, is the way you make that flip between fear and move on to faith is, is clear sight, which is really what faith is. It's truly seeing what's going on. And, and this is the main point. This is the climax of what's going on. I mean, it's true that what's going on is really, really hard and it seems like it could totally break you. Yeah, that's true. That's the first portion of their story. But what's truly going on in the climax of your story, this story, the story of God's people, is a God who fights on behalf of his people to grant to them the redemption that he has purposed. I mean, hear these verses just to ask yourself if you've truly caught the point. Deuteronomy in chapter 1, verse 29 to 32. This is Moses, same author, same guy with a stick in this story. Listen to him as he's telling them why things went bad in the book of Numbers. Because things went bad in the book of Numbers. Just in case you have not read that far. 
So I said to you, Moses said, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you, just as you saw him do for you in Egypt. This is what you didn't get. This is where you went wrong. I told you to not be terrified. Why? Because it is the Lord who fights for you. It's like a one-stringed guitar. Don't miss this point. It's not your battle. It is his battle. And he fights for you. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 21, 22. And I commanded Joshua at the time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done for this two king, to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. You see how their story began was not the end of it. The way their story began is the way their story was meant to continue. Their story was not meant to begin with pure grace, God fighting for them. And then it's up to you from there. You figure out the rest by yourself. No, 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 no. The rest of the journey home was meant to continue to be the same exact thing. Uh, when Joshua gets into the land, how does he summarize what has just transpired? How did they get in? Listen to him. Joshua 23 verse 10. One man of you puts flight, puts flight, puts flight a thousand. Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Don't get the story wrong of the conquest. It's boiled down to this one reality. How did the people enter the promised land? God fought for them. You remember David? That's how they got in the Joshua way. In the book of Judges, how are they supposed to remain in the land? Remember Goliath, that story? It's kind of epic, right? It's hard to forget. That's where our little phrase came from. In his speech to Goliath. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. That's 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47. These were supposed to be a weird people. Not putting their hope and trust in a king whose head and shoulders are above every other man. That's the way of the world. David gets it right. These were a peculiar people. The way in which they were saved was by the Lord fighting for them. The way in which they took the land was by the Lord fighting for them. The way in which they keep the land against the enemies, David gets it. It's by the Lord fighting for them. You could go on and on and on with that little portion. You could look at Habakkuk and that beautiful ending of it, chapter 3. And that long portion in chapter 3 is all about God putting on his armor and going to war for his people. That's why Habakkuk has those beautiful words at the end there of utter confidence. And it seems like he ought not to have confidence with Babylon bearing down on them. Well, I would never be invited to preach here again if I don't make it clear that all of this is pointing to Jesus. I hope you've caught it so, so far. But in Luke chapter 9 and verse 29 to 31, you have that vision, you have that, that place where Christ is being transfigured. And Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking to him. And as they're talking to him, they're talking to him about what? The departure that he's about to accomplish for them. That word departure is the word Exodus. 
What this same Moses, we've seen him here, leading the people out, shows up to talk to Christ about, is that departure. Well, how is Christ going to accomplish that? Chapter 11 of Luke, he speaks of a strong man. When a strong man fully armed guards his own place, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What, what, what the Bible wants us to see as clear is that you and I have great enemies that we cannot overcome by ourselves. Sin has taken down every man from the beginning. It has spread to all men. Death has followed sin and has spread to all men. And in as much as man has entered into the ring with death, not a single one has survived it. So far in that battle of humanity, if you're following it year by year by year by year by year, death is perfect in its record. Zero for mankind. Perfect record for death. Until Jesus appears. And when he is born, he goes to fight for us against our greatest enemies. The devil, sin, and death. And in the same way in which Pharaoh, in many ways, is pointing towards that seed of the serpent, Nimrod and Cain and everybody else who has come before him and after him, and yet the promise is that the serpent's head will be crushed, so too is Satan. When he faces Jesus on the cross, he is destroyed. Colossians wants us to understand what God, what Christ is doing on the cross on our behalf as him fighting for us, an enemy we could not have defeated by ourselves. In Colossians 2, 18 to 15, the phrase it uses in verse 15 is, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. Christ fighting on our behalf, so that when the accuser now, the enemy, the devil, Diabolos, Satan, the ancient serpent, whatever you want to call him, many names he has. You know he's shifty by that, knowing that he has too many names. When he comes up against us with accusations, see what he's done, see what he's done, see what she's done, see who she truly is. What Christ has done for us has vanquished that that he cannot make any credible accusations towards us. For whatever he points to in, 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 in form of our sin, Jesus in his work on the cross is able to say, I paid for that. I died for that. The thing that the church is saying in response to sin is not, I've done this or I've done that or look at my giftedness, look at how important I am in the church, look at my big grand ideas for Jesus, look at, look at, no, look at one thing. Look at Christ and what he has done. When the church faces death, it's what they say. Not keep your fingers crossed, not it will be okay. Some phrases we give to each other for encouragement are floating in the air. Why will it be okay? Because this is death. It is not going to be okay, unless, unless you give me a good reason. It will be okay because on the third day after Jesus died, he rose from the grave. And that means that that death no longer has power over God's people. No longer has the sting. 
for God's people. Will you notice this if you'll bear with me? That this is exactly the same kind of advice, divine advice, that the first century church is given. When the church is embattled, do you know what they're asked to do? That's the book of Revelation. See. See your conquering king. It's the whole story, isn't it? They are being killed. They are being tempted by materialism from Rome. They are being attacked by false teaching. The church is facing multiple battles. It wasn't just martyrdom that was the threat. Look at those first letters. And it was so hard to be a Christian. What do they need to continue to faithfully walk towards their destination home? A vision. That's what God gives to John, isn't it? In Patmos, he helps him see. And the first thing he sees in chapter 1 of Revelation is what? Christ, meek and mild? Uh-uh. Glorious vision. That's Christ in all of his armor. What does he see in chapter 5? Christ, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered. That's what they need to see. See that the fight has been fought and the victory has been won. That's what you need to see so that you don't give up, so that you don't yield to fear, but continue to cling on to faith. See what he has done. Don't just seek to crank up yourself with, with, with words on a mug. See that he has won, that he has fought for you. Chapter 12 of Revelation might be the most beautiful one where there's a fight going on between Michael and the archangel, uh, Michael the archangel and, and, and the devil, that ancient serpent and all of his armies. And we are told that he's thrown from heaven. The accuser is thrown from heaven. He is conquered. And because of that reality, the little people whom he is persecuting, putting to death, tempting, can conquer because he has conquered. I'll read the words for us. They conquered him, 12, 11, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives in the face of death. Chapter 19 ends the same way. You have a vision of Christ riding a horse. He's not coming for a chit-chat. He's coming to totally vanquish and destroy everyone who is wicked. And he's coming to rescue his people. And that's how 2021 20, and 22 are ushered in. The promised land, the true Canaan that we are all anticipating. How will we make it safely home? Not by us fighting, but by him fighting. So saints, what are you looking at? What are you staring at? What are you meditating on? Look to the Christ who has conquered on your behalf. Fight your fear by staring at the realities that he has accomplished. Would you encourage one another that way? Would, would his name and his victory be more on our lips? That as we, as we speak to each other, we would admonish one another with those realities? Do not despair. Do not believe the lie of the enemy. Because the reality is, Christ has conquered. I know how it feels. I know how it looks. But through faith, we see a grander, truer reality. 
we will make it safely home, even though it feels like it's all about to come to a crashing end, a, a, a failing end. That's not true about us. This is always going to be our story. Would you pay more attention to your, to your beautifully liturgy? It's so well crafted. What a blessing for me to sit through it. It's seeking to show up your faith with, with those realities. Would you keenly pay attention to them and, and feed your faith on this feast of the gospel that is put forth for you in all of the scripture readings and, and the songs? Would you take it home with you as you go? Would you allow the word that you have heard from here to, to be one that you will marinate on all week long and, and allow it to, to reverberate amongst you as saints? So that the thing that becomes the strength of the saints at, 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 at the river of God? River City. I truly am. I truly keep making a mistake. The thing that would become your strength would be that one thing. That these are a people who are clinging to this reality that they have a God who has fought for them. Would you pray the same thing for our church? That the thing that we boast in the most would never be our programs or our strategies or our pastors or any of that. But that as a people of God in Nairobi, we would have one song and one boast amongst us that it is Yahweh who has fought for us. Amen.